Well, this morning we're continuing our, our sermon series on the drama of Scripture. And we're taking four weeks or two weeks on each of the four acts of the drama of Scripture. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And there are four other words that we introduced a couple of weeks ago. Ought, is, can, and will. Creation describes the way things ought to be by God's design. Is... Uh, the fall describes the way the world actually is because sin has permeated everyone and everything. Redemption describes what can be because of the death, resurrection, and exaltation of Christ. Restoration describes uh, what will be. It's not in doubt what will be when Jesus restores all things. And so this is the sixth message in this sermon series. We're, this is the second week on restoration, last week, or redemption. Last week we talked about God's plan of redemption through Israel. Today we're going to talk about how God fulfilled his promises in the person of Jesus Christ, how Jesus himself is our redemption. And there's a lot of different terms and a lot of different themes that describe redemption, but today we're going to focus on, on one of those, namely the kingdom of God. And this is not everything we need to know about redemption, but it's one theme that describes, it really, it really describes the plot line of this period of time in which we're living between the fall, we live in a fallen world, and before all things are made new. What we see happening, if you read the New Testament, if you sat down in one sitting and read the New Testament, you would see that it screams that Jesus is the king and he is establishing an eternal kingdom. It's so vital that we understand that this is what God is doing in our day so that we enter in and participate with him in the establishment of his kingdom. And this is not merely a, a, an academic exercise. People who understand that Jesus is the king and he is establishing an eternal kingdom, they are passionate about Jesus. They are people who seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And so that's, that's our vision for the church. I'm haunted by what Mark Batterson said about the church. He's a pastor in the D.C. area. He said, sometimes I wonder if churches do to Christians what zoos do to animals. Animals that should be wild and dangerous become tame and lethargic. And you say, I wonder if churches do that. And sometimes in church, we get the idea the goal of church is to come and sit quietly in rows for an hour a week and then go live our lives as we always did. But actually, Jesus said, if you understand the kingdom, if you understand what the kingdom is like, you'll be like a man who sold everything he had to buy one pearl. It was that valuable. Or you'll be like the man who found a treasure in a field. And because you wanted that treasure so badly, you sold everything you had and bought that one field. You're all in if you understand the kingdom. And so today, I would, in, I would encourage you, wherever you are in your relationship with God, whether you say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, or whether you say, I'm just here checking this out, I don't know, I'm just checking out you people and finding out what Jesus and the Bible are, wherever you are in relation to God, I would encourage you to pay attention and learn about the kingdom, learn what Jesus teaches about the kingdom, what he's doing in our age. And uh, as we, we're, we're going to, this is a seven point sermons. Most sermons have three points. Some sermons are pointless, but this has a, this is a seven point sermon. So we're going to try trace our way through what the New Testament says about the kingdom. And after every point, we're going to ask the question, so what? 
why does this matter? And so we hope to get at the heart of this, why we need to understand the kingdom in our age. And so, first of all, we're going to talk about the birth of the king. And by the way, we, we put the notes, all the, the sermon manuscripts on our website. And so, if you want to go back and look at these scriptures in depth, I would encourage you, you can find them on the website and look at them later and go deeper in the things we're talking about. But first of all, let's think about the birth of the king. There are numerous statements and numerous events surrounding the birth of Jesus that stress that he was the promised king. He was the promised Messiah. And one of the core things that the angel Gabriel told Mary was that her son would be the king that was promised to David. We looked at 2 Samuel 7, that promise last week. This is what we read. Uh, Gabriel says, And behold, you, Mary, will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And so Mary's told, your baby is going to be the king over the house of David forever. And it would have been the most natural thing for Joseph and Mary and everyone else in Israel to think that Jesus was going to be a king with political power. He was going to be the one who would finally rid Israel of the Romans, the occupying Roman army. And that's certainly what Herod thought when he heard about this one who was going to be born king of the Jews. He was so threatened, he told the the wise man, he said, come back and tell me where you find him because I want to worship him too. That they were warned in a dream and they said, no, Herod's bad. So they they left without telling Herod. When Herod found out, he was so threatened, he was so enraged enraged that he commanded that all babies two years old and younger in and around Bethlehem where Jesus was born be slaughtered. And so what's the point? The point is that nobody understood the type of king that Jesus was going to be. So what does this mean for us? It means that we need to be very aware. We need to be aware that we very likely have misperceptions about the type of king Jesus is and the type of kingdom he's establishing between the fall and the restoration of all things. We'll see in a couple of weeks that when Christ returns, his kingdom will subsume all other kingdoms. Uh, The kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God in Christ. But in this third act of the drama of Scripture, the kingdom that Jesus is is establishing is radically different than any other kingdom. If we don't understand that, we won't enter in fully and we won't won't, uh, participate as we should. So we need to allow the Holy Spirit to correct our misperceptions of the kingdom of God just like they did at Jesus' birth. Well, let's think about the gospel of the kingdom. When Jesus was about 30 years old, he started his, his public ministry. He began wandering around Galilee. And what was the core message that he taught? Well, in, Matthew, or in, in Mark 1, 14 and 15, here's the simple declaration that Jesus made. We read this. Now, after John, John the Baptist, had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And so Mark says this this message that Jesus brought was the gospel 
of God. And in the first century, the word gospel wasn't really necessarily a religious word. It just meant good news. It might be the good news about the birth of a child or the good news that a battle had won. The good news Jesus was preaching was the good news about God. And this this good news involved two statements, and it demanded a response. First, he announced that the time is fulfilled. He says, you need to know we are living in the day that, Jesus, that, that God promised to Abraham, that God promised to David, we are living in days of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is, uh, or he's saying the time is fulfilled. And secondly, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's very near. In other words, the invasion is beginning. The, in, the, the kingdom of God has begun to, to, to be established on this, this earth. And significantly, instead of an invasion that might be characterized by shock and awe, this invasion is going to happen one heart at a time, one person at a time. That's why after this announcement, he invited a response. He said, therefore, repent and believe the gospel. And so the only rational, logical response, if you really believe that God is, is establishing his kingdom eternally over everyone and everything, the only rational response is to repent and believe the gospel. And to repent doesn't merely mean feel guilty, feel badly about the life you're living. Uh, feeling guilty is, can prompt us to repent, but to repent means to change direction. It means to change the way you're living your life. And so if you drive down Tuttle Creek Boulevard, you go over the bridge and you take 177 to I-70, you get on I-70. If you want to go to Kansas City and you're heading west, you need to repent, okay? You need to take the exit ramp, go across the interstate and go back east, and if you are living your life as your own king, as your own boss, as your own Lord, and you want to live in the kingdom of God, you have to repent. You have to turn away from yourself. You have to admit to God, God, I'm my own king. I'm my own boss. I have lived my life the way I want to live it. But I want you to be my king. You turn away from self and you turn to God. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. So Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. And living after the death and resurrection of Jesus, we understand the gospel more fully. We now understand that Christ died for our sins. He was our substitute and he was raised victorious and he was enthroned as the king. And so when we believe the gospel... It's not just a new title. It doesn't mean now I go to church on the weekends. It, mean, it means that I am a new creature in Christ. I have new appetites. This is like a dog becoming a cat. You, you are a fundamentally different creature. I'm a new creature in Christ. I become, you, you and I become sons and daughters of the living God. We become subjects in the kingdom of God. And we gladly live under his reign. And so, so what, why does this matter? So what, what, what does it matter that Jesus came saying the time is, is fulfilled? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Well, among other things, this means that Jesus is not merely calling us to be better people. He's not merely saying you need to try harder. 
He's not merely saying, you need to go to church twice a month instead of once a month. He's not saying, you need to tip God more generously. He's saying, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you need to radically reorient your life. You can no longer live as your boss, as your master, as your Lord. You need to turn away from self. You need to turn to him and in a wholehearted way say, God, I submit to you as my king. Based on the death and resurrection of Jesus, I accept him as my Lord and Savior. I want to live wholly in his kingdom. In this time in which we're, period, we're, we're living, between the fall and the restoration of all things, you do not have to do this, okay? You can keep living your life as your own Lord, okay? It's very possible. You can mock God. You can spit in his face. You can shake your fist. You can do all these things. But, but Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that one day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King, And so again, if this is true, and I believe with all my heart this is true, much more sane to repent and believe the gospel. Enter the kingdom, now you live under his reign gladly. It won't be forced submission, you live gladly in the kingdom of God. Well, let's think about Jesus' mighty kingdom works. And so the miracles that Jesus performed met tangible needs. Jesus wasn't doing tricks. He wasn't like a circus animal just doing things to amaze people, okay? He met needs. But his his miracles also were an indication, they were a sign that the kingdom was being established. In Luke 7, we have Jesus' own interpretation of his miracles. You may remember John the Baptist was in prison and he he began to doubt, was Jesus really the one? And so he sent some of his disciples to go and ask Jesus, are you the expected one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the king who will sit on David's throne? Or should we expect someone else? And here's Jesus' answer. This is in Luke 7, 22. And Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. And so Jesus basically says that the things you see me doing, the things you see happening, those are evidence that I am the expected one. I am the one Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 61.1. Those are the things he listed. And so every time Jesus healed somebody, it was evidence that the power of God was breaking into this world, reversing the effects of the fall. Every time someone was delivered from demonic influence, it was evidence that the tempter, uh, the serpent of old who tempted Eve in the garden, his reign is coming to an end. Every time the, the poor and others on the margins of society finally got some good news, one thing poor, the poor need is good news. It's evidence that, that of the kind of generosity it was always intended for humanity. And so what does this mean for us? And I want to be fairly careful, but not too careful how I say this, but the miracles of Jesus, the mighty works of Jesus should inform our expectations as we live in the kingdom. He's still the same king. He still has the same power. And so it's, it's my understanding we should expect miraculous things to happen. 
we should expect to be delivered from demonic influence. And it's very nuanced in the New Testament. Not everybody was healed of every disease and every ailment. And yet, uh, I don't, so I don't, I don't feel like I can wrap it up and put it in a, in a nice, neat package for you. But I believe with all my heart, Hebrews eleven six, it says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can do a lot of things without faith. Pleasing God is not one of them. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For the one who comes to God must believe two things, that he is, that he exists, and number two, that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And so as we seek him to, to meet genuine needs, we should expect that he will still show up in power. And even in the midst of our weakness, his power will be, will be manifest in us. Well, think about Jesus' teachings about the kingdom, especially, especially his parables. They, they reveal a perspective about the type of kingdom that he's establishing. Uh, Matthew 13, for example, it says, do you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of God? In Matthew, he calls it the kingdom of, of heaven. It was less offensive than the kingdom of God. They didn't, the, it was written primarily to Jews. But he said, the kingdom of heaven, it's like the, the grain of a mustard seed. It's the smallest seed in the garden. It begins very, very tiny. And yet when it grows up, it becomes as big as a tree. Birds can make their nest in this tree. And so that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It starts out very small. Again, so don't expect this, this overwhelming uh, invasion to happen. He says it starts very small but eventually it would extend to the entire earth. And so why does this matter? Why, why does it matter that, that we soak in Jesus' teachings about the kingdom? Well, basically, so that our misperceptions are corrected. And so I would encourage all of us to be teachable and to believe what we're told about the kingdom. And let me just give you one example of, of how this can, can affect us. Again, in Matthew 13, Jesus told this parable. He said, he said, there was a man, and we find out later, he was, he was a farmer. He was a, he was a wheat farmer. And so he planted his field with wheat, but he had these enemies. And one night his enemies snuck in and they sowed tares in his wheat field. And he didn't know it. And then when the plants started coming up, the, the servants came to him and they said, there's, there's tares growing with the wheat. Do you want us to pull out the tares? And the farmer said, no, if you do that, you might pull up the wheat, wheat plants. And so what we're going to do is we're going to wait till the harvest, and then we're going to harvest the tares. We're going to bundle them up, and we will burn them, and then we'll harvest the wheat. And Jesus' interpretation is that's what the kingdom is like. The tares and the wheat grow together. And so the, the ungodly, the evil, the wicked, they not only live, but sometimes they thrive in this world right beside the sons, of, the sons and daughters of the king. And so it's God's patience, it's God's kindness that he doesn't pull up the tares before the harvest. He says, when the harvest comes, the wicked are going to be gathered. They're going to be bundled up and cast into the fire. He says, it's going to be this, this horrible judgment. But until that time, you need to understand this is what the kingdom is like. And so again, if we don't understand this, we'll be impatient with God. We'll wonder if God is even powerful. We'll wonder if God is paying attention. We'll wonder if God even cares about our plight in the world. Well, read Matthew 13. Make peace with the, the fact that in this world, 
between the fall and the restoration of all things, this is what the kingdom is like. Think about the crucified king. You know, in Jesus' day, uh, it made no sense whatsoever that the promised king who would sit on the throne of David forever would be crucified. It made absolutely no sense. That's why Peter rebuked Jesus when he made it clear. We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over to men. They're going to torture me, and they're going to crucify me. I'll be raised on the third day. That made no sense to Peter or anybody else in that day. And so... Uh, The fact that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords would be crucified, it makes it shockingly clear that the kingdom Jesus was was establishing would be different than anything they had experienced. I want to read just one passage. This is in John 18. Uh, Jesus is answering Pilate, who was kind of interrogating him before before he uh, kind of gave up. Um, before Pilate just gave in to the crowd's demands. This is John 18, 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you're, you're a king? You are a king? And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And so he said, if, if my kingdom were just like everybody else's, yeah, we would fight. But remember when, when Jesus was arrested, he had to tell Peter, Peter, put up your sword cutting off people's ears. That's not how we're going to take over the world. That's not how this kingdom is going to move forward. And so Jesus would establish his kingdom through suffering, weakness, and humility, not through violence, power, and anger. So what? Why does this matter? Well, we still serve a crucified king. We still serve a king who said, if they mistreated me, You have to know that they will mistreat you as well. No slave is greater than his master. That means that we need to understand what Peter needed to understand, what all the disciples need to understand. We don't need political power for the kingdom to move forward. We don't need to be outraged at every offense, both within the church and from those outside of the church. The kingdom does not move forward by anger, by power, by intimidation. It still moves forward by weakness and humility and suffering. And so we serve a crucified king that has implications for how we live between the fall and the restoration of all things. Think about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul explained that the resurrection guarantees the victory of King Jesus. And this is a theologically dense passage, so I'm going to cherry pick one core idea here. But we read this now, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, but also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. 
Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he was crucified, but the fact that he's resurrected guarantees that he, he will have a victory over all of his enemies. This means over all of the demonic powers. Uh, remember, it started in the garden. The fall started with the, the, the rebellion of Satan and his minions. And so it will be the, the, the uh, defeat of evil spiritual powers and the defeat of death itself. So why does it matter that Jesus is raised? Well, this speaks to our confidence in this life. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees that those who are in Christ will be resurrected. It guarantees that all of Jesus' enemies will one day be subdued, will be defeated. It guarantees that God will, will finish what he has begun, this redemption of all of creation. I like the way N.T. Wright put it. He said, the first disciples believed that God was going to do for the whole cosmos what he had done for Jesus at Easter. The resurrection of Jesus guaranteed. There will be a day when you and I don't need to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There will be the overlap of heaven and earth, perfect overlap again one day. Well, finally... Everybody with me? You still here? Finally, think about the mission, the mission that Jesus gave the church. The mission Jesus gave his people is as vast as his own mission to reverse the fall and establish his kingdom over all creation. Of course, our role is different than Jesus' role, but the scope is just as broad. And this is a passage that's familiar to most of us, but hear it again in light of the drama of Scripture. This is it's called the Great Commission quite often. This is in Matthew 28. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And... I think I got one more page. And teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so you may have noticed there's four alls in these verses. Uh, first of all, first, Jesus has been given all authority where? In heaven and on earth. Does that remind you of something? Heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. Genesis 1.1, God created, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The one who created all things, the triune God, has authority over all things. If you look down in verse 20, at the fourth all, Jesus promised, I am with you always, always, even to the end of the age. And so we're not alone in this mission. The one who has all authority is with us always. And then the second and the third alls are the so what of these verses. So what? Why does it matter that he has all authority? Why does it matter that he's with us? Well, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so the scope of our mission reflects the scope of the kingdom Jesus is establishing. 
God promised to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The vision in the prophets is that people from every nation will come streaming into Jerusalem, streaming into the temple, and worshiping the one true God. Well, that promise and that vision are fulfilled in Jesus. And so this means that as followers of Christ, living in the kingdom of God, we don't just care about us. We don't just care about our tribe. We don't just care about our nation. We want to see people from the, we want to see those from every grouping of people on earth come to know Jesus. And so we look at the news through the eyes of this mission. We, we look at, at things that happen around the world in, in light of the kingdom God is establishing. Next week, we're going to have a, a baptism service, uh, and each of our people will be baptized in each of our services. And that's, that's one of the ways that disciples of Jesus go public, and they say, I'm all in when it comes to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus also tells his disciples, this is the third all, he tells them to, uh, to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Dallas Willard called this the great omission in the Great Commission. He says, a lot of times we don't really go for this. So I would ask you, is it your ambition to learn to observe everything Jesus commanded? Or do you view the the New Testament more like a buffet? I'll have a little of this, a little of that. Or do you say, no, it's my ambition to observe all that Jesus has commanded. If you, if you go back and read the Gospel of Matthew, you'll find Jesus gave commands that involve every area of life. Every square inch of our lives is claimed by Jesus. It's supposed to reflect that we now live under God's reign. And he commanded us as individuals and as a people to have a very comprehensive influence in this world, announcing the good news of Jesus near and far, delivering people from demonic powers because Jesus has all authority, noticing and ministering to people who are hungry, sick, and imprisoned. That's a mission that can keep us going. That is a mission about which we can be passionate. And so I'm haunted by this possibility that Faithy Free might do to you what zoos do to animals. The antidote, it seems to me, is to understand the kingdom that Jesus is establishing in our day. Creation, fall, during this period of redemption, the takeover has begun. Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. And then you enter the kingdom and participate in the expansion of the kingdom. Heavenly Father, we ask that these truths would grip our hearts, our imaginations, that they would inflame our passions to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. God, we believe that you want to do something extraordinary in our day and in our city, in this country and throughout the earth. And so God, we want to be fully yours. Teach us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. We have to admit that in some ways we have no idea what that means, but, but keep, keep us hungry, keep us teachable. We want to follow you. We don't want to miss what you're doing in this world. And so use us, lead us, empower us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.